I'm Zach Childs and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today our guest is Chad Jeffers. Hey Zach. Chad is an individual who has thrived in an ever-changing music industry. He has been an artist on RCA with the group Pint Monkey. He has played with a variety of high-level acts including uh, Kenny Loggins and Keith Urban and he spent the last almost 13 years playing with Carrie Underwood. He plays a variety of instruments, including you know, guitar, dobro, lap steel, pedal steel, saxophone, harmonica, mandolin, <laughs> banjo, ganjo, on and on and on. And the reason that he continues to thrive and work is because he has a can-do attitude and he's determined and he's a, such a hard worker. And Glad to have you on the show today, Chad. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the nice uh, intro. I feel like we're done now. This is awesome. <laughs> Quit so, while I'm ahead. <laughs> so now I'm going to bring you down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Chad, you know, you and I, we've known each other for 24, 26 years, something, something like, like that. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And um, just so we can set the right tone of, of the interview, uh, we, we were in a band together that we started with some friends. That's right. And uh, we very, you know, we, we only knew like a handful of songs, and somehow uh, we, we got uh, noticed by, you know, two, you know, high-level Nashville, you know, session players, right? A pianist and a guitarist, <laughs> right? And I don't know if we should should we name names or not. I think it's fine. Okay, yeah. so it was Matt Rollins and Kenny Greenberg, right? Okay, and. Even though we only knew a handful of songs, we had never played a gig in our lives. <laughs> Okay, this is around, what, 97? Yeah. Yeah, around 1997. Uh, they took us to Tony Brown's office. Now, at this point, Tony Brown was just about the most powerful man the guy, in Nashville. Yeah. He was producing and the head of the uh, head of MCA. He had George Strait. He had Vince, Vince. Gill. He had Reba, Reba. He had the Mavericks. He had all yeah. these really big commercial acts and also artistic acts, you know, like Lyle Lovett and, and Marty, this, Stewart. Marty Stewart. You know, this guy was a, a big deal. And so we were in a band together. We had never played a gig. <laughs> and we were playing in Tony Brown's office. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the feedback that we got afterwards was that uh, Tony Brown said, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I apologize in advance. I'm not going to say the word. But uh, Tony Brown said, we look like a bunch of effing choir boys. <laughs> Which, to Tony's defense, we probably did. Yeah, I mean, you had a sweater vest and I had a dickie on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that was during the time where, I mean, getting a record deal was everybody, that was it. You know, yeah. once you got a record deal, it's like... You know, oh yeah, we need to create music, and we need to, we, we you know, it's like no, it's like all about getting the record deal, and yeah. and uh, yeah, that was that was I'll never forget that day, and that yeah. it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we really had the cart before the horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's back up and kind of start earlier. So tell us about your your late father and and his uh, his kind of musical influence on your life. Yeah, well, my dad was a singer songwriter, and we were born and raised with. Um, Conway Twitty kind of music and Don Williams and Towns Van Zandt. And uh, my dad, uh, he had a, a gig coming up and it was in front of 1500 Rainbow Girls. Mm -hmm. And so Rainbow Girls is kind of like girls that from 13 to 18 years old kind of, uh, you know, uh, junior league kind of thing. 
And so um, my brother, who's also a professional musician, yes. um, you know, he and I thought, well, why don't we back my dad up? We'll be his backup man. I'm eight years old. My brother's about 11. And so we back my dad up. He agrees to let us go and play. And so it's at Freedom Hall in Johnson City. So it's a big arena in front of these girls. And when we get through playing, we were the last people on the program. And the girls literally chase us into the dressing room. So my brother and I, we're running scared out of our mind, running like, you know, the Beatles, you know, <laughs> we're like running into the dressing room. We close the door and, you know, we're both looking at each other, just big eyes. And I'm like, I said, you know, I don't know what that was, but that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so from that moment on, we started our, our little family band. And our dad was, you know, he was the, the ringleader in terms of helping us. And he had been to Nashville and he had written some songs with, um, you know, Bill Anderson, and which Conway and Loretta had recorded, never released. Then hopefully maybe one day they'll put it yeah. on something. But um, it, it was a lot of, uh, you know, he, he just kind of coached us and mentored us through, you know, what we need to do and everything like that. And then eventually, um, you know, we Matt Mahaffey, you know, joined the band, and Matt's gone on to be a successful producer and everything like that. So that yeah. was the start of of our kind of my brother and my both of our careers was at that early of an age because we just knew that, that purposefully that's what we really wanted to do. Yeah. Kind of a side note: um, when I got my very first gig with the Wilkinsons, I know I'm skipping a little bit ahead, but it, it's relevant to this story is the very first gig I ever played as a professional side guy was in Freedom Hall, Johnson City, Tennessee. So of all the thousands of venues that we could have played, yeah. it was that one. And so very serendipitous, yeah. I guess. Yeah, there's a, a neat way and so many times in life there's like some things come full circle and that's, yes. a, that's a, a neat moment of that. So with your dad, your dad had, you know, had kind of been you know, in kind of in the music industry, kind of one one foot in it, and I'm sure he had a lot of advice for you in a lot of ways. When yeah, he coached you. What were some golden did. nuggets um, from your dad? Some golden nuggets. I mean, with with some of the things that he would tell. Uh, one thing, yeah, you know, this is back in the the late '80s, and he worked at Eastman Chemical Company or Eastman Kodak, like Kodak yeah. Film and everything. And um, you know, he he always told my brother and me and Matt even. Uh, Matt was kind of like our our brother from a different mother kind of guy. And so he would kind of put Matt in with us as, as brothers and, you know, he said, hey guys, he goes, if you really want to make it in the music business, if you really want to do this for a living, don't ever get a job with benefits. Because the moment you get a job with benefits, everything's out the window because you become comfortable and safe and you don't really want to, to rock the boat in any way because you might lose your benefits. Yeah. And so uh, he, that was one of the nuggets. The other one was uh, you've got to go to where the music is. So for us being country, you know, Nashville was the place. Matt eventually went to L.A., yeah. um, you know, or, or, you know, if you go to New York. So by me, he's like, you've got to go there because, you know, I grew up in Kingsport, Tennessee, East Tennessee. So it's four and a half, five hours from Nashville. You know, his whole point was they're not going to call you in Kingsport saying, hey, come down. We have a session. You know, it, you've got to be there and you got to become like a fabric, a part of the fabric of the community mm -hmm. of, of this place. So. That was the, the other strong nugget that, and so of course my brother and I both moved to Nashville. Yeah, Matt Mahaffey. Tell us a little bit about him for those who might not be familiar with what yeah. he's done. So Matt was our, our drummer in, in the band and he went on, uh, he and my brother were roommates at college at MTSU 
And uh, he went on to produce like uh, some stuff on the Shrek album. Uh, he toured with Beck. Um, he did uh, the Expedia.com. Well, that's Matt. <laughs> so that's Matt, and he wrote it and recorded it. And, uh, and then he's also, uh, right now, uh, his, what's just incredibly big is um, he does, he's done all the music for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Nickelodeon. So he's done all the music for that. And he's just done tons of commercials and, yeah. and worked with Pink. And, I mean, just an incredible just talent. Yeah. And, uh, and so he, he often says, you know, that my dad was one of the, the help mentor and, and orchestrate him to get where he is today. Yeah. So you made, so you and your brother, Mike, uh, Michael, you know, made the decision to move to Nashville. And you, and you came to Belmont. And that's where we met. That's right. Yeah. What did you learn from Belmont? I don't remember classes <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, you know, I, we were both in the music business department and I, I remember, um, I, what I remember the most is just working. I worked all the time. Um, if I wasn't in the studio, I was out playing gigs with other people, a lot of writers, doing writers nights around town, um, you know, and, and just learning, um, learning more just about the instrument, practicing and and that, that's what my real takeaway, you know, and being in bands and, and, and recitals and all those things, but it was more about getting off campus and, and just getting, meeting people and building kind of my network of people and relationships and uh, to help grow with, with the music. Yeah. How important are relationships? It's, it's everything. And, and, you know, the thing with, with gigs, you're going to get on a good gig, you're going to get on a bad gig, and to me, they're, they're both very, um, very meaningful because even the bad gigs, if you have those relationships with people, the relationships are lasting. The bad gig isn't, you know, right. so it, it's this too shall pass. But, you know, but a lot of times in, those turn into war stories, you know, when you talk to other people like, you know, playing for Tony Brown, yeah. you know, and the, those things, you know, it, it's the band never worked out, but, you know, you and I are still buddies. Well, and, and yeah, and, and those, those situations, even in the bad gigs, you end up playing with other people that move on to other good gigs, and exactly. then they and then you pull them onto those. I've I've told people that I've never gotten a job from a resume, right? You know, and it's all word of mouth. Yes. And then the only way you get that word of mouth and those relationships is by putting yourself out there. Absolutely. Is by playing. And the same way, I've never gotten a gig from an audition. Yeah. You know, I've done some of the auditions where it's a cattle call, and I. I mean, I cannot stand those. <laughs> yeah. And and everything I've ever gotten in in my whole career has been, hey, Chris Rodriguez says you're the guy, so you're the guy. You know, Kenny Loggins calling me personally saying that. Yeah. Um, Chris McHugh telling Keith Urban about me from a demo, and and you know, it's always been word of mouth. So relationships yeah. are are crucial. Yeah. So let let's hit on you. You kind of mentioned before the the Wilkinsons. So. You know, so how did that come about? So that was your first, you know, kind of pro gig with a, an act that was signed. How did that come about? Yeah. So um, you and I were in the band around '97, and and we went on into '98, I guess. And you know, we did the Tony Brown uh, <laughs> office <laughs> visit, and then we uh, we played for a lot of different other, you know, just publishers or anyone who would listen, right? And yeah. It was, we, we eventually got up to, I think, four songs or five songs, and we're like, yeah. all right, let's take these to everybody. And, um, and we played at a publishing company called Hay Street that Alan, uh, one of our piano players, uh, worked at. That's, that's Alan the, Hall. That, yeah. In the group Sela. Right. Yeah. And he's, he's amazing. And we, um, 
we played at Hay Street. And I remember that, I remember where we played, but I don't remember like all the people. I remember there's quite a few people kind of crammed in there. And, but we just played and then left. And I didn't think anything about it. As graduation came um, from my time at Belmont, uh, came, was coming to an end and I was about to graduate, I remember thinking, man, did I major in a minor like instrument, like with Dobro? I mean, because that was my main thing. And I thought, did I major in a minor instrument? And, you know, I got a lot of self-doubt and all that stuff. Right, because you, yeah, you're, you're, you're thinking, I majored in the wrong instrument because it's not important enough. It's not an important enough instrument. Exactly, and yeah. there's not a lot of people that play it, so it must not be important. Yeah. Well, it was soon after that, just literally after thinking that, that I got a call from um, Fitzgerald Hartley, which is a large manage, uh, artist management company, and it was Bill Simmons, and uh, he said, hey, he goes, I've got an, an artist that has a lot of dobro in their music, and Doug Johnson heard you play, you were in some band in college, and he heard you play, and he says, you're the guy, so you're the guy, can you do fanfare, which is now CMA Music Fest, but he said, can you do fanfare with, with my artist, The Wilkinsons? Yeah. And I, I said, sure, do you need to hear me play? Do you want me, and he goes, yeah. no, Doug Johnson says, you're the guy, you're the guy. Because somebody vouched for you. Exactly. And that's, that's what it's all about, is people yeah. vouching for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. So I did fanfare, and then um, then they didn't do anything. They had a, their song was 26 cents, and it was flying up the charts, and they didn't really do much during the summer months. And then in the fall, they got on the Alan Jackson tour. So I kind of heard rumblings that they were putting together a band. So I thought, well, okay, I want to get I want to get in front of them, but you know, this is before you know any kind of social media or you know, and they weren't playing out. So I'm like, how can I get my name in front of them to let them, you know, remember who I am and everything? Right. And so, 26 cents had just gone number one. So I um, went and got a quarter and a penny and put it on train tracks and had it, you know, the train run out of. Of course, it smashed. You know, it's it's all flat and. And so I put it on a five by seven card and I sent it to their management because I knew where that was mm-hmm. and it wasn't creepy, you know, sending yeah. like to their home address. Right. But uh, I sent it to their management saying, hey, congratulations on your smash hit 26 cents. Hope to see you very soon. And I sent it to them just to get my name in front of them again. And about a week later, they called, they, they were laughing, you know, so corny, so cheesy, yeah. but it, it worked. But it did the job. And so they said, uh, they said, oh, you had it the whole time, but that was great. Yeah. <laughs> so then that's when they started putting the band together. That's when I went and did the Johnson City, my very first gig. And then we were on the Alan Jackson tour, which was amazing. You yeah. know, to, that was my first real gig. So. so then you're going from, you know, kind of playing the singer-songwriter, you know, kind of club gigs and maybe, you know, again, playing fanfare and stuff. All of a sudden you're on a major tour. What are you learning? You know, what are some of the uh, you know hard knocks? Some of the things that were you know kind of tough to learn. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that was just um, learning the rhythm of the road in terms of, you know, keeping yourself healthy, okay. you know, um, eating right and things like that. Alan had a great you know great catering and all that stuff, but you know when you get out on the festivals, it's you know it's really bad food, and it's just learning to navigate toward that, um, making sure my gear was up to snuff because a lot of that was, you know, a lot of this stuff I was piecemealing together and from college, you know, like just putting little pedal boards together or, um, you know, just making sure all of that, um, 
you know, endorsements. You know, I was that for me as a guitar player, it's all about the endorsements. You know, and so I was just <laughs> trying to contact anybody and everybody, and which you know, then you know, through the years, you know, like I only use, you know, I only endorse things that I really use and things like that. But um, you know, it it was just a matter of just getting in, into the rhythm of the road for me, uh, being out there with the Wilkes. Yeah. But, so I, I guess the, the the next thing is 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 pen monkey. Right. So to back up back to college, um, I was uh, doing a lot of volunteer work through the Music Business Service Corps. I believe okay. that's what it was. And so that we would just go out like if there was um, a party or something, they need someone to work the doors, like check tickets or whatever. I would do that. And one of the guys I met was actually one of um, he worked in the office with Allison Krauss. And so he and I started talking and become friends. And he said, hey, he goes, a friend of mine is playing the Bluebird, um, and he's, he's looking for a dobro player. He goes, I've never even heard you play, so I don't even know. But he goes, he goes I can tell that you, you've kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of with it. And he goes, would you want to do that? And I said, well, sure. So he calls this guy up, and I go over to this guy's house, and we run through a couple of songs. He goes, cool, do you want to do the Bluebird? And I said, sure. So we're opening up for Gretchen Peters, which at the time was – you know, she was like the hit, the big hot hit songwriter, and so we did the Bluebird together. And then he called me again to do another writer's night, and we just it turned into an ongoing thing. And then we uh, eventually uh, we said, well, why don't we get a bass player? So we tried a bunch of different bass players, and then I just said, hey, you know, my brother plays bass too. And he goes, why didn't you say that to begin with? You know. And so uh, my brother came in, and so we were a three piece. We played a lot down for people that live in Nashville down at Guido's, back behind San Antonio Taco Company. Yeah, little, that go? little pizza joint. It was, yeah, it was the size of like this little this little area right here was the stage. And um, so we did a thing on, I think Thursday nights called Whiskey Fireside, Whiskey Fireside Hour or something. Rod Pycott put it on. And so, um, you know, there would literally be 10 people in the audience, but we were just trying to work up a catalog in, in music. And then eventually we added our drummer, Rick Shell, and um, we, uh, we we added him as a member because we didn't want to pay him as a side guy. <laughs> so we're like, just become a member. And so, uh, and then that's what started Pen Monkey, which yeah. once I got the Wilkinson gig, um, Pen Monkey, we started doing a lot of recording. Um, my dad had recorded an, an album and he had bought a Roland VS1680, one of the old school hard disk recorders. And so then that's what Pen Monkey actually did our first album on in their my mom and dad's bonus room uh, on the VS1680, which is what somewhat led us to get a record deal with RCA. Yeah, so in that process, you're learning about recording and such because you're having to engineer it and all that stuff yourself. Very correct, yeah. And so, um, you know, being at Belmont, I learned a lot, um, you know, on about tape and we were recording, you know, digital tape and things like that. And then the, the 1680, um, had just somewhat come out, and so learning, kind of, you know, getting my my feet under me with that, and so yeah, I was making all the mistakes in the world, and you know, and it, it was somewhat limited in terms of what we have now. And r- around that same time is when I met Jimmy Olander, and I was out with the Wilkinsons, and uh, Diamond Rio was closing the show, and uh, he was just warming up, and I literally just walked up and I said, "Hi, I'm Chad Jeffers." And he goes, hi, I'm Jimmy O. And I'm like, I really like your guitar play. And then we just started a conversation. And um, and then that's what turned into 
he being my mentor for since 98, so 22 years or so. Yeah. And, and so part of the recording after doing the 1680 with Pen Monkey, you know, he said, hey, um, you might want to upgrade to Pro Tools. And I said, yeah, but I don't know Pro Tools. And he said, great, get Pro Tools and learn it. <laughs> learn you know, it. and so he, he was definitely one of the mentors along the way with the recording process and everything that helped me dramatically. Yeah. So, you know, Pen Monkey, you know, gets a deal with RCA. And so th this is, a, again, you've been a sideman. Now, all of a sudden, you're part of a band that's signed. Right. You're meeting, you know, with the label head, Joe Galani, all this yeah. stuff. So what are you learning? What are you learning now uh, as, <laughs> as, yeah. as being an artist, yeah. being I on mean, a label? Well, it's yeah, you're an artist. You're, um, you know, an entrepreneur. You're a business person. You're... Um, we had a great manager, Rick Alter, that helped us kind of navigate through a lot of the, especially the business stuff. And he comes from a, a booking background, so it helped us a lot with booking, you know, routing and things like that. Um, and we had the, the independent album, which really helped us get on the road. That was one of our main tour supports was, was the independent album of getting out and hustling it and selling it. And while we were actually finishing that, we were making the first RCA album, so we're taking meetings with publishing companies, with A&R from, from RCA, meeting with Paul Worley, who's our producer. Yeah. Um, so like every day, it was chalked full of meetings, and all of us were songwriters, so we started you know, getting more into the songwriting um, realm of stuff. So it was taking a sip from a fire hose, you know, you're just, you're just really going all out. But it was our dream, so... It was a very passionate for us, so we were really, uh, we were all in. Yeah. So now we we met up again at this point, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was guitar teching for Brad Paisley. That's right. And of course, Pin Monkey was opening some shows for Brad, and I was really glad to to see all y'all again, especially you. And uh, then you know, I'll just say, you know, Brad like to play uh, practical jokes. He's known for the prankster, yeah. <laughs> and he d he pulled quite a few of them. He did. <laughs> so my favorite one was uh, while Pen Monkey was doing their uh, their meet and greet, uh -huh. he had the uh, the VJ with CMT, which, you know, at that point they were playing a lot of, you know, music videos. They had him come out and introduce Pen Monkey early. Uh-huh. While y'all were still right. doing the meet and greet. And so myself and some of the other guys in Brad's band, we came out with our instruments and with <laughs> monkey masks and monkey gloves on. And we came out and performed uh, a couple of songs. <laughs> and the audience, and, and of course, y'all heard it being announced. Yeah. You know, here, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Pin Monkey. <laughs> And, and we came out, and and we our last song was "Hey Hey We Are Pin Monkey," yeah. to the, copying the the the, the monkeys right, song. Right. So, what was your recollection of that? Oh, it was funny because we um, we had the meet and greet, and typically, you know, we're a, a brand new artist, so we don't have a lot of people come through meet and greet, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we had like a lot of people this day, and we're like. Where are all these people coming from? And what we didn't know that you know Brad was kind of stacking it, you know, having more people on there, and, and yeah. so we were in a um, it was like an old auditorium the, from what I remember, and so it was very reverberant. I mean, yes. it was, and uh, we just yeah we heard hey, it's Pen Monkey, and we're like, <laughs> what? 
We're, no, they can't do that. We're back here. You know, we're all yeah. like, and so then we run out, you know, once again, kind of like the Beatles running out and yeah. we see you guys out there on stage yeah. <laughs> and Brad's on the side recording it with a video camera, you know, so yeah. was, and thank God. I mean, there's a little lady that stood up and clapped for you guys. She's yes. Like, oh, you guys are there so good. There was one little old lady that at the end, I really like these pin monkeys. Because every, every, everyone else, I, I think they realized that they were being had. Yeah. And... <laughs> And, and, and then the real pin monkey came yeah. out, and they and and y'all and y'all were y'all were fantastic. Oh, I, no, I always enjoyed you know enjoyed your sets. So then you uh, you did you did your first album, and then you you cut a second record, and then uh, you know as what sometimes happens, things weren't you know moving in the direction that you wanted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the first album, I think it only sold you know, 80,000 units or so, which is a failure on a major label, especially back then. Yeah. You know, I mean, you had to reach, you know, 250,000 or 500,000 to kind of be worthy, you know. Right. And so they actually, they we went ahead and started cutting a second album with Mark Bright as kind of a, um, you know, they're like, let's, let's keep doing this. And, um, and then it was after that when they released a single from that, uh, Let's Kill Saturday Night, and it just really wasn't moving the needle for him. So they're like, all right, well, we're gonna have to move on. Yeah. And you know, our manager called Mark Bright and said, well, you know, they, they got dropped and um, they still wanna keep making this record that they were kind of making. And, and Mark's like, I'm all in. Like, I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't work with them just because they were signed to RCA. I worked with them because I really liked the music. Yeah. And so he, um, we started making the independent album which eventually did come out, and we did most of that um, at one of the studios in Nashville, um, 17th Avenue Sound, where Mark, uh, we just got in there on an off day and we got it for real cheap and did a lot of the tracking and then brought everything back to my house, and I was up to snuff with Pro Tools by then. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then that's when Mark Bright and I actually really got to know each other because it was he and I sitting there mixing and, and working on different pro, you know, or different um, pieces of the, the project. Yeah. And, um, which of course led to other things in terms of he was producing Carrie Underwood at the time, which you know which helped me in terms of landing that gig. Once yeah. again, about relationships. So, as Pin Monkey was kind of you know you know making this you know in you know an indie record instead of on a major label, then you get you get another offer, right? <laughs> and you had a really difficult choice of whether to stay with Pin Monkey or take this offer. So tell us about the offer. Yeah, well, so um, because I was songwriting, um, I got the chance to write with a guy named Wayne Kirkpatrick, who was like on my bucket list of songwriters. You know, I mean, I've, I've just always been a fan of his um, songwriting, musicianship, artist, producer, uh, he, he's everything. And so when I got that call to go write a song with him and John Bettis, I mean, who's a Hall of Famer songwriter guy, I was just like, wow, I'm like way out of my league, but let's let's do this. And and I actually, I had a riff that I had for a long time from even back in the Belmont days that I always kind of tagged. I'm like, if I ever get a chance to write with Wanker Patrick, this is what I'm playing, you know? And sure enough, that's what I did. And he's like, I love it. And then, and, and so he and I started uh, writing more and more and we would write a bunch of songs, and then the ones that were kind of worthy, he would bring in a band. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was producing Little Big Town, kind of helped developing their sound. This is the early days. And so they would sing on my songs, on the demos, and then he'd have Chris McHugh and Jimmy Lee Slows and Mark Childers and all those guys playing on it. 
and it was um, there was one song. The song is called Wonder Woman, and at the end, he, Wayne just said, "Hey, man, just play Dobro. Just just play, and we'll fade it out." Just play until you don't want to play anymore. So, you know, I just sat in the studio just playing this solo and just playing and playing and playing and playing. And then when he brought the band in, Chris McHugh was the drummer, and he was uh, just with Keith in terms of the live band, had just gotten with Keith because uh, he had done studio stuff for many years, but um, Keith was putting together a new band. And Chris McHugh said, Wayne, who's who's that? And he said, well, that's the co-writer Chad, he's in the band Pin Monkey, and he's like, well, we're looking for a slide player. I need to get his information. Yeah. And so literally, that's how that happened in terms of the Keith. And so, you know, Chris McHugh had to pass it on to Mark Hill, who was the music director. And then Mark had to uh, kind of do a little audition with me just to make sure, because, um, you know, we, we didn't know each other at all. So Mark calls me up, and he said, um, hey, he goes, um, you know, these are the instruments, you know, in dobro, which that, you know, and guitar, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, and, and ganjo or, or banjo. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he said, uh, and, and do you play mandolin? I'm like, oh, yeah, my, one of my favorite instruments. And he goes, all right, cool. Well, I'll send the songs over, and, and, then, uh, and then I need you to come over and just kind of, you know, it's more for him so he can go to Keith saying, yeah, I've heard this guy and everything. Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, he, you know, as soon as I hang up, I'm calling my good friend, Zach Childs. Zach, do you have a mandolin I can borrow? <laughs> I don't have a mandolin. <laughs> and then you gave me that little blonde, yes. little ace style kind of thing. And, and I, I'm like, all right. So I learned how to play uh, Days Go By. And, and you know, and, and then I went and auditioned. And then that got me my, my Keith Urban gig. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things, you know, that I want, you know, that I was hitting on in, in kind of the intro is just you have always had this kind of, you know, ballsy, kind of on the edge, can do attitude. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, it, it's never, you know, kind of smacked you in the face. It's like you've, you know, you've kind of, you know, he asked you if you played mandolin and it's like, yes. So and then you get off the phone immediately, you're getting a mandolin and, and you're, and, but you would shed and you get it to where it's like no one, you know, it's like no one could say, oh, he just started playing the mandolin. Right. I mean, you, you put in, you know, the hard work and, uh, and, and really, yeah, that's, that's impressive. And that's a, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why you've, uh, you know, continued. And, and there's all these other instances, which I don't want to skip ahead. So, but now you're on, you know, now you're on the road with Keith Urban. And at that point, he's got Chris Rodriguez in the band, and there's mm -hmm. Chris McHugh, and it's, uh, that's, you know, quite a, uh, it, it quite was, a live band. Yeah. And it was definitely something that I had to definitely work hard to, musician-wise, to get up to that level. Uh, I mean, it was, it was amazing. And, you know, there's a guy named Jim Rohn, you know, he, he always says that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. And, and I think that that's very true. He's not a musician, but I think that's true for musicians is, yeah. you know, you get in a band with people like Chris McHugh and Mark Hill and Steve King and, and Chris Rodriguez, and it's sink or swim. You know, you've got to come up to that, to that level. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's, and, and, and even back in the Wilkinson days, you know, coming out of college, stepping into where, where it's all guys and this is what they do. This is all they do. They're, they're musicians, side musicians. And to step up to the plate and, um, you know, put in the time and really work to that. Put in the time not only just technically and, and fundamentals, but also with the gear and have the, the right gear and, and be the best you can. Yeah.
Was it hard? I know, you know, Pin Monkey wasn't uh, turning out like you wanted it to, but was it hard to leave that kind of being an artist and the band to being a sideman? Yeah, it was definitely hard. And I'm a very entrepreneurial kind of person anyway. And so it was definitely, um, you know, I kind of felt like I was kind of selling the family business to move on to kind of more of a, a job or a gig. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was definitely a, a difficult thing, which is why I think that that's, that's fueled the passion for me to be, uh, you know, continue writing because that is more the career driven, um, be a producer and, yeah. and, and just as a career, not just have gigs, but have a full life career. But I, I think that that's something that's kind of, you know, leaving the pin monkey was, that was the one thing that kind of fueled everything else. Yeah. Because, you know, all through this, you've always, besides the, the sideman gig, you've always had these other things where, you know, again, part of that entrepreneurial, you know, spirit. Yeah. Yeah. On the this Keith Urban you know tour that you're on, this was one of his biggest you know tours. Which which one was uh, was it? Uh, it was the Be Here tour? Okay. And um, I think there's one other, but this was like in this his meteor roar kind of. I mean it 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 went crazy. Like every show, it just was like unbelievable, just kind of crazier. Yeah. Um, fans and and just uh, it was it was spectacular to, to watch that. He has a great energy. Yeah. He has he has a magnetism to him, and people really respond to it. Yeah, and it, I learned a lot from him in terms of being an entertainer. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, of course, he's just an incredible guitar player and everything, but he would, it was still about the live aspect of it. I mean, like, if he messed up on guitar, but it was a great th moment, it's like, okay, great, Let, let's just, you know, and he wouldn't, like, get flustered because he messed up, you know, or, yeah. you know, and... and um, you know, there's a couple of times where he'd walk out through the crowd. You know, people would grab his arm and you'd hear, you know, on yeah. guitar or whatever. But it was just part of the experience. And um, I've really learned from that in terms of just, um, you know, it's it's music. And it, it's not, you know, just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it's not a great experience for people. Right. And so um, that was one thing that I really learned from him. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, people don't think about and is that, you know, as a sideman, you know, you're still part of the entertainment. Right. And so uh, going from, from Pin Monkey to playing with Keith, uh, how did you handle yourself differently on stage? Well, and, and the cool thing about Keith was um, he's, he's comfortable enough with himself where, you know, hey, you want to take a solo? Go on up to the front of the stage and take your solo. Yeah. You know, ba basically his thing was, you're not going to upstage me, yeah. <laughs> you know, because he had that confidence. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah. so there, there was a lot of freedom in that, um, you know. But anytime we did anything on camera or like, um, you know, we did a live DVD, living right, uh, living right here, right now, um, where you know, for the camera angles, they're like, hey, kind of stay in your your spot. You know, there's things like that. Yeah. But in terms of like the concert in general, you know, there's definitely lighting cues that you needed to hit. Where they're like, hey, at this point of the the show. These lights are going to be on, so you need to be in your spot. Yeah. But besides that, it was just kind of just do your thing. And 
I really appreciated that. That made it a little bit easier, especially coming from the pin monkey days. So then we uh, then we get to Kenny Loggins. Yeah. <laughs> so so then you got to call you know play with Kenny, and uh, and. And he hadn't really had a, a dobro player in the band before. What, right. what what caused him again? It's like this instrument is is getting you in all these different places. I know it, it, it was kind of crazy. So he Kenny called me on my landline at home, and so I um, I had a, a buddy in college, Danny, and he and I would always prank call each other. Or if one didn't answer the phone, it was like. Hey, it's Paul McCartney. Saw you, you know, I was wanting you to join my band, but you didn't answer. You know, it was stupid stuff, you know. Yeah. And so we'd always prank each other. And so when I saw this call, and he's from California, Danny is. And so I saw this call from California. I'm like, okay, well, this is weird. So I answered it because no one calls me on my landline. And so I answered it and he goes, hey, um, um, uh, I'm looking for uh, Chad. Uh, this, is, um, uh, this is Kenny. I'm like, Danny, and he goes, no, no, it's Kenny, Kenny Loggins. I'm like, Danny, come on, where are you going? You know, he's like, no, it's Kenny. I'm like, oh, and I could hear the timbre in the voice. I'm like, oh, that's Kenny yeah. Loggins. Yeah. My favorite Beatle is uh, Paul McCartney, and my favorite, you know, I'm like, yeah. what do you say to Kenny Loggins? And and so he said that, uh, he goes, I just finished an album that has a lot of slide work, and um, and he goes, uh, you know, I, I, Chris Rodriguez says you're the guy, so can you be in LA in, in four weeks and, and let's rehearse and go on the road. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so, uh, you know, eventually they sent me the, the music and uh, sent me, you know, 25 different songs because it wasn't just the album, it was also all the other songs from what, three or four decades that he's right. got, you know, and there's different versions of every song. Right. You know, so they're sending me all these different versions and everything, but it was a set list of about 25 or so that they wanted me to learn. And so um, in that order, you know, because they, they kind of had their, what was going to be kind of the, the, the first release or the first single and, and things like that. So I learned what they, you know, I followed directions and learned everything. So I fly out to L.A., we're in the rehearsal studio or in the rehearsal space. And the way he would do his rehearsals was he would have um, like kind of a bullpen for each instrument. So like drums was Tom Breckline, Stevie DeStanislaw or Stevie D. Um, and then like on guitar would be Gene Miller, Chris Rodriguez, um, Scott Bernard. And then, you know, so like every instrument had multiple people because throughout the year, all the, you know, Stevie D plays with Pink Floyd and, David Crosby. So he might be doing the date with them. And so Kenny would have a different drummer. And so walking into that rehearsal space was very intimidating because I'm just like, wow, this is, this is a high level. And so everyone was set up in somewhat of a horseshoe with Kenny being in the middle. And so I'm walking in with my guitars and pedal board and I'm like, you know, where do you guys want me? And they're like, right in front of Kenny's where we want to set you up. And I'm like, oh man, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, we got this, we got, you know, <laughs> and, and because also I, I, I'd heard how um, Kenny's ears, he's just so in tune and like he, he knows his stuff. <laughs> this is not just an artist, you know, that, I mean, he's produced this stuff and wrote all this stuff and, and then he knew it inside and out. And so I sit down in front of him and uh, get my sounds and everything. And he said, all right, let's, let's start rehearsals. And, 
and the song they picked was 25 on that list of everything they wanted me to learn, one being the, the priority, 55 not being the priority, and so I'm like, okay. And you know, it's not that I hadn't spent a lot of time with that song, just in the context of this set list. And so we played the song, and, um, and then after the song was done, it was that awkward quietness, you know, that in rehearsal, and, and everyone's, everyone's thinking, what is he thinking? You know? mm-hmm. And I'm sweating bullets, you know? I'm like, either this is really, really not good, or, you know, or we're hanging in there. And Kenny just said, all right, let's, let's do it again. So then games are being played in my head. I'm like, okay, do I do what I just did or do I take it apart? And so anyway, I did it like I just had played it, which was just verbatim from the album, you know, note for note. And then after the second time, he just looked at me and said, that's, that's great. And I'm like, whoo, oh my gosh, <laughs> what a relief. And so then we did a couple more songs, um, you know, in that rehearsal. And then, you know, I was playing note for note from what they sent me. And then after that, he just said, hey, he goes, clearly, you know, the, you know, the recordings and everything, just play what you want to play. And so from that moment on, it was, it was awesome. And probably one of the most musical gigs I've ever had because it was, it was challenging because there's so many different versions. And in rehearsals, we would work out a new version. So then that night when we're playing, you're thinking, okay, is this sound check or, or is this the one, you know, from the Redwoods, live at Redwoods, which Sonny Landreth played slide on. Yeah. And so I was like, man, this, these are some big shoes I'm feeling here. But, um, but much like the Keith Urban, Kenny Loggins was so um, confident in himself. You know, he's like, man, I'm all right. You know, I had a solo and he said, just get up to the edge of the stage and you play as long as you want. And we had a, a channel going back into the song and he said, you know, hey, just look back, give me a nod and we'll go to the channel. And, but it was, it was very musically freeing just to, just to play. And uh, it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, and I, th- I think you hit on a, uh, an important, you know, kind of note in that because there's a, a lot of g- other gigs that you've been on where things, you don't have the freedom Right. Where you don't have the the ability to be improvisational. Right. To just go to the edge of the stage and play whatever you want to play, and then when you're done, to look back. Right. That's a rare thing. It is a rare, and especially, um, you know, with, with newer artists where they're trying to fit into a format and trying to fit time-wise into certain things, and, you know, hey, just play it note for note, play the solo note for note, then we'll just keep, you know, going. And so, yeah, yeah to have the, the music freedom was, was, was really nice. <laughs> yeah. So then we, uh, we get up to Carrie Underwood. Mm-hmm. So how did you get the call for that? I, um, I had met Mark Childers, who's our music director, mm-hmm. um, years ago with the Keith Urban gig. And he was, on, he was with a different artist. And after the show, they came over and just hung out on our bus and you know, just shared war stories like, like we do. And I remember before he left, you know, um, I wasn't looking for a gig or anything. And you know, I just said, hey, man, if you ever need a slide player, hey, here's my number. Just give me a shout, you know. And, and he did. He called me. Um, and Keith, we were on this crazy world tour. And I remember I was in Germany and I was checking my voicemail because, you know, phones, cell phones didn't work over there. And so I was checking my voicemail from the airport and I got a call from Mark and he wanted me to do some TV stuff with this artist. And, and you know, obviously I couldn't possibly work it out. So I called him and I just said, hey, I just want to let you know, you know, I would love to, but I can't do that. And 
Um, you know, because to me, that's doing the right thing is returning someone's phone call and just letting them know that you can or cannot do something. And But little did I know that it was kind of those little things that he actually said that really impressed him a lot that I at least let him know that I couldn't do it. And um, and then when, when it rolled around, when Carrie needed a slide player, because at that point she hadn't, didn't have anything, uh, didn't have a player for that, um, he called me and he said, hey, you might not remember me, but, you know, Mark Childers, and of course I remember. And he said, hey, um, Carrie, we're, we're looking for a slide player and, and you're the guy. Can you meet with management this afternoon? And I was walking into a writing session in Nashville on Music Row and, um, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, yeah, I can make it, but I'm in jeans and a T-shirt and I don't have my slide guitar. I had just a, yeah. an acoustic. And he said, no, no, no. He said, just they just want to just meet with you. And so I met up with management and then that that was it. Um, you know, wow. Like, no audition. You know, you just, mm-mm. yeah. There you, there you go. <laughs> so, so I've learned, don't let people hear you play. Because <laughs> everyone, you're like, you want to hear me play? No. <laughs> so... Now with with Carrie, this again part of this you know alluding to from the from the from the intro with this can do attitude. There's been a succession of, hey, uh, we need you to play this. Yeah. And even though you didn't know how to do that, maybe very well, right. or maybe you hadn't played it in a long time, but you've had a series of of instruments that you've picked up. So the first one would have been pedal steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they hired me to play slide guitar, and so I was playing, you know, dobro and and lap steel mainly with that, and um, and I was just doing a lot of behind the bar bends. You yeah. know, um, I was tuning the B string, which I'm, I'm in an open G tuning, but then I would tune tune the B down to an open A, and so then I would bend it all the way up, you know, to kind of give it that steely sound. You know, that and volume pedal. Yeah. And, and some verb to kind of give that effect. And, you know, there is no replicating a pedal steel guitar. I mean, it's just, it's so unique. So one day I called Mark, our music director, up, and I said, hey, because um, it was taking me forever to learn some of these pedal steel licks on a lap steel, and it wasn't translating. And I just asked him, I said, can I, do you mind if I just grab a pedal steel and just learn it? course pedal steel is one of the hardest instruments and he he kind of laughed and he just said yeah man knock yourself out <laughs> you know? yeah. and literally about a month later I'm playing it on the Opry <laughs> because I just went all in and I had some great um, kind of teachers Tommy White from the, the Opry um, helped me out quite a bit just and uh, I had a, a steel teacher that uh, helped me just in terms of just the mechanics and and kind of how to do it, you know, and and then after that, it was just meant just time. It was the you know become more ambidextrous, you know, in terms of you know pedals and levers and 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 I kind of had the bar, you know, I had the bar and the finger picks. I kind of had that already under my hands from from this, but it was a matter of incorporating everything else at the same time yeah. and, and moving forward with it. So, how much were you practicing on the pedal steel to get ready for that first? You know, Opry game. Oh, it was all I was doing. <laughs> you know, and and it's it's uh, it it's you have to learn it slow. I mean, you know, the, I always heard the the fastest way to learn a fast lick is to learn it slow. Yes. You know, and it's to slow it way down. And then the same thing with the pedal steel. And what was crazy was just you know you'd be you know I'd be looking at my right 
foot and like, or my left foot and be like, all right, first two pedals down. And then I do that and then like, all right, rock it. And then, you know, and you're kind of talking to your body and you're like trying to get that, the feeling because it, after, after you learn it, it, it is more of just a feeling. You know, it's like whenever you pick up a guitar, it's like G. You just you don't even think about it, right. or, or D. And um, and that's the way I had to get on the pedal still, where I just didn't have to think about it. I, my hands just muscle memory went there. Yeah, and she did a. You know, she normally did more contemporary sounding material, but she did. You know, uh, you know, she did a duet with uh, Randy Travis, mm-hmm. and uh, and so of course it was. You know, I told you so. I told was you so. Was a song yeah. and. Yeah, and so that was, I, I really had to, to work a lot <laughs> to yeah. get that. Because, I mean, so much about the pedal still is not just the notes. It's, it's how you make them feel and how they translate. Um, you know, it's, it's the, just that emotional sound of the guitar. Well, and, that, and that instrument, that's really what gives that material a lot of its you know, atmosphere. You know, by adding that one instrument, all right. of a sudden... It really pulls it into the right feel and and mood for that song. Yeah, yeah, and and so for me, it was diving into you know Mike Johnson played a lot on her albums, but the Tommy White and John Huey, which I've always been a big fan of, yeah. um, you know from the Conway Twitty stuff, and then of course Paul Franklin is is the 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 the, the guy <laughs> the you know, gold standard. Yeah. But then also you know a, a big influence of mine was Daniel Lanois, so learning yeah. kind of you know, his, which was definitely a departure from everything else in, in yeah. terms of the country stuff. And at one point I actually, I, I thought about maybe not using finger picks because he does more, because. you know, just, just uh, skin. And um, thankfully um, people like Tommy White just said, no, you, if you're going to do this country, you need, you need your finger picks. So. Yeah. And you can still do the, the Lanois thing with, you know, with your finger picks. Yeah. 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 So the the next instrument that you you know kind of pulled in was a uh, harmonica. <laughs> so what happened with what happened with harmonica? Oh, How yeah. did that come up? So um, Mark, our music director, called me up. He said, "Hey Chad, um, there's a he goes. I haven't heard the part yet because they were still recording and mixing it and everything. And he said, but I hear that there's a harmonica. Do you play harmonica? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah." Um, Anyway, I, I said, well, I've got some harmonicas, but you know, how involved is this harmonica part? You know, yeah. is it just kind of a you know, singer-songwriter kind of, or is it like a Terry McMillan, you know, P.T. Gazelle kind of thing? Right. And he said, I, he goes, I, I don't know yet. And he goes, well, you know, the backup, we could do lap still if we need to. So, you know, I kind of had that in the back pocket, but I'm thinking, man, if it's a harmonica part, learn the harmonica. And, and so, um, so I, I got a harmonica and, um, started working on it and you know of course I tried you know all the little the little booklets that you get with a harmonica and I tried some YouTubes and I'm like uh and then I heard the part and it was pretty involved and I'm like okay this this gets my attention <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I asked Mark uh, who played on the album and so he got me the name of the guy and and got his number for me it's Travis Meadows Okay. And so one thing I love about Nashville is just the openness of, of people with knowledge that they know and, and everything. So I called Travis up and I said, Travis, I said, you don't know me from Adam. And, you know, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you don't have to help me. 
I mean, I, I understand if you don't. Yeah. But I said, I play in Carrie's band and this harmonica part that you played. And uh, I said, would you mind showing me kind of what you did? And he goes, oh, yeah, man, absolutely. So he and I, we meet in a parking lot over off West End at Ted's Montana Grill. Because that's the only place we, you know, he was leaving town and I was coming into town and just seemed to make sense. And so uh, we're standing outside of my car and it's starting to rain. And, and I'm like, all right, what did you play? And he goes, oh, um, I, don't, I don't know. He goes, I, I played, you know, six different times and I guess they comped it together. So I don't know what actually made it. I'm like, okay. So I had a recording of just just my track, not of the other music, just a track. So I put it in, and so we're just waiting. And I don't have a waveform, so I can't like. So we're just standing there, kind of awkwardly, awkwardly staring at each other. Yeah. And it's starting to rain, and we both have harmonicas here in the parking lot. <laughs> and I'm like, man, this is so Nashville, <laughs> you know, learning harmonica in the parking lot. And um, so then it, it would come up. So then he would play some things for me and. And then uh, I just kind of learned it from that. And so I, I worked really hard for about a month or so getting that. And Mark would periodically call me and say, hey, how's that harmonica coming? <laughs> like, well, it, it's, it's getting there, you know. And he said, well, um, Carrie wants to learn it. And I'm like, ah, what? You know, I'm like, oh, did I waste all this time? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, I think it's going to be you guys together. And so... What it turned into was actually she and I, it was, this is on the Storyteller Tour, and so the stage went uh, lengthwise of the, the arena, so we're in the round. She and I, in the very center, doing a harmonica dueling with each other, and then it kicks into the song Chuck Tall, um, which is the, the harmonica, and, um, and it, it turned into one of my favorite moments of the show yeah. was playing harmonica, um, and, and what was funny, people would come out to the show, a lot of my friends are like, dude, you're like amazing on harmonica. I'm like, uh, yeah, how about guitar? Yeah. That's what I've been working my whole life on. <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, but man, yeah. A harmonica. I'm like, yeah. okay, that's, I guess that's good. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's, it's always funny, you know, what people will say, but yeah. But that was a, a, an important part of the show. It was. Yeah, and, it was like, and you were there, you know, kind of having a harmonica duel with your boss. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually the very first thing we ever did, we were doing a promo tour, which, when you do promo tours, you're doing a lot of TV, you're doing, um, you know, internet, uh, radio kind of things. And so our very first thing that I ever played harmonica on in front of anybody was the Today Show. So in front of millions of people. And so actually I, I texted Travis the night before, Travis Meadows, and I said, hey, we're going to be on uh, the Today Show tomorrow and I'm playing harmonica. It's going to be great, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Hopefully, great, great, good. You know, great on the, the good side. But it turned out, it turned out really good. And yeah. so, but it was fun learning that and and diving into it. And the the latest is saxophone. So yeah. So um, I played saxophone um, in grade school and in, in high school. Um, you know, I played multiple instruments. Started on drums, went to piano, guitar because our guitar player quit, and so I just hopped into guitar, and then eventually the dobro. Um, and then also I played saxophone in, in just a high school band kind of thing. And, and actually I had a scholarship to some other universities, not Belmont, and that I did not take because I didn't want to play saxophone for the rest of my life. You know, guitars, that's what gets the chicks, you know? Yeah. So it was all about guitars. And, um, and so literally after I did not take the, the scholarships, I just kind of shelved the saxophone for 20 some years. And, and so, um, 
it was last, uh, it was early 2019, and I was, actually I was watching a, um, a music bio of uh, Chet Baker. Uh, it was a live thing that Nashville Jazz Workshop puts on here. And Chet, uh, Chet is one of my favorite musicians of all time. Lived a very troubled life and drugs and women and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But um, this was really cool how they, they would play some of his songs live, and then they would talk about his, his crazy life. And there was a saxophone player in that band that was really good, and I thought, wonder if I could still play saxophone. You know, and I didn't want to be like that guy, like, well, you know, back in high school, I was, you know, the best, you know. And, um, but I, I just, it, it was kind of in the back of my mind. And literally um, a week later, Mark, our music director, sends out a text to the band saying, hey, does anybody play saxophone in the band? And I'm like, this is kind of freaky. And and then someone said, hey, I think Chad like had scholarships, to, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, thanks for calling me out. And so um, so I, I just thought, let's give it a shot. And and I called up a, a, a company here in Nashville, Jupiter Sax, and I just said, here's the situation. I don't have anything. And you know, you, you could have possibly an instrument on the Carrie Underwood tour. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're all about it. So I went over to their, their place here in Nashville and, um, you know, they said, well, you know, what, what size reed do you use? I'm like, I don't know. What kind of ligature? I don't know. What kind of mouth? You know, I'm like, I just put it together and, and let's see. And, and it, it remarkably, it just kind of came back to me. And, so, um, so I went into rehearsal with the guys and with the sax in hand, literally not playing. And they're like, get it out and start playing. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> this is going to take a little time. And, but I went in with, you know, kind of check the ego at the curb. And I just said, hey, look, you know, you guys asked for this, so you're, you're about to get it. Yeah. And so, uh, but I kind of had them part of the process, you know, and which would is kind of the only way to do it, just with humility, because there's no hiding that I can't, you know, that I wasn't up to snuff on on sax. And the thing with you know any kind of instrument like that is is building the embouchure and and you know it's muscles, and so you can't rush it. You know, it's it's you got it. It's just endurance. And so um, I learned the sax, and it actually become also a focal point of the uh, Cry Pretty Tour 360. Um, where basically all the lights went out, and then it's just me on this this ramp. Uh, we call it the monorail that kind of went around the stage. And um, so I did like a 20 or 30 seconds, and uh, just me and our, our piano player, Scott Sheriff. And so I would just play and then start walking down this ramp in the dark. So marching sax kind of helped me a little bit with this. And then it got to a point where it was me and Mark Childers playing upright bass, and then Carrie, and it was kind of a jazz kind of scene. They brought screens down and made it look really smoky and chase lounge, and it turned out to be a fun thing, and it, it was a lot of fun. But once again, it was a lot of work just to get up to speed and to, to kind of learn how to play sax as a sax player and not as a guitar player playing sax, which was, you know, that was one of the, the tougher things. Yeah. Um, so, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Every night on tour, it got my attention because I'm like, here it is. <laughs> You've got to go really, for it. really concentrate. But it's awesome having people like Jupiter and Diodario who does the mouthpiece and, yeah. and everything for them to for their support, which has meant the world to me that they helped me out. Yeah. So, besides you know the uh, you know playing with Carrie for the last almost thirteen years, 
You've also have your your own projects where you do you do some coaching. You wrote a book a while back. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so many people would come up to me when we're out on the road and everything. They're like, "How did you get a gig with Carrie? And how did you get a gig with Kenny and Keith? And how did you get signed to RCA and all these yeah. things?" And and as we know and kind of been talking about, it's not just one answer. It's it's a process. It's relationships. It's all those things. And so I just thought, why not just put it into a book and. So I did that, and then a whole speaking career came from that. So I'd go to different um, media institutes and universities and schools talking about being a musician and the ins and outs of it. Um, and then um, and then eventually Belmont called me, and they said, you know, because right. I'd been doing some guest lectures and things there, and they said, hey, would you want to be an adjunct professor? And so I said, sure, I've always wanted to do that. And so I went in and and leaned into that of just being an adjunct and created a course for him. And, um, and then so then Carrie, then we got busy and I got back on the road, which of course I can't do both because right. you have to literally physically be there in a classroom. So um, I created an online course called Backstage Notes. And so it's a lot of what I taught in a, a college class, but it's the ins and outs of being in this business. A lot of the stuff we've, we've discussed here and uh, just the, the, the path to, to help people with their journey. And uh, I interviewed seven different experts in this business, uh, hit songwriters, uh, hit engineers, uh, Jimmy Olander, my longtime mentor, I had to interview mm-hmm. him. So it, it's a, a very comprehensive course to help people who are either looking at moving to Nashville or wanna just pursue music in general. Yeah. So backstagenotes.com slash truetone so anyone who's watching this, there's actually some special stuff I'm giving away. All so right. they can just, uh, we'll have a link to them. And so awesome. just check it out. Cool. So Chad, tell us, you know, what made you pick up the Dobro in the first place? Um, gosh, I was probably 14 years old, and I was already playing guitar a lot in, in the, the band with Matt and, and my brother, and, and we had a friend, Kelly, that played with us. But um, yeah, and one night I was watching uh, The American Music Shop, which is a, a TV show that was uh, like all the A players. It was the... The, the, the Slingers, I mean, they were amazing. It was Mark O'Connor and uh, Jerry Douglas and Brent Mason and um, Harry Stenson, Matt Rawlings. 
uh, or John Jarvis. But anyway, it was uh, great players, and they would always bring on kind of left of center guests or more independent guests. And this particular night that I was watching, it was uh, Leo Kotke. And then Jerry had, Jerry Douglas had a couple of solos. And, you know, with Jerry, I was just like, man, whatever that thing is, that's what I want to do. That, that yeah. is so cool. And um, so I went to my local record shop and bought, you know, Leo Kotke album. And uh, so I just dove into that. And, you know, Jerry was on that. And then it was produced by T-Bone Burnett. So, you know, at this moment in my life, you know, a lot of my music stuff was really starting to be shaped. And so here I have Leo Kotke, Jerry Douglas, and T-Bone Burnett. So then I just start looking for anything with Jerry Douglas. So Allison Krauss, you know, he was producing her. And then um, some other people, you know, that, that you know, anything kind of Dobro slide that was on the Nashville Network, which is what American Music Shop was on, it was Jerry Douglas. And so um, then Strength in Numbers, eventually, which is a, a little band that he, uh, an acoustic band. Um, and then I, I was diving into T-Bone Burnett stuff, so which was a, a wide array of stuff. And so that was what got me started in terms of just um, the dobro. I had a guitar teacher that, um, that I'd been taking you know, for the last couple of years, and he also played a pedal steel, and he had a dobro. And so I picked up his dobro, and it, it literally just kind of fell under my hands. And my parents had already bought like a banjo and a fiddle for my brother and me to try different instruments, which to no real avail on that in terms of taking it seriously. So whenever I said, hey, I want a dobro, they're like, yeah, and because the cheapest one is about $1,000 at the time, you know, and is, couldn't find many used ones in our, in our little town. And so my dad had two guitars and he had a, a Gibson 63 Dove, which is one he normally played, which he had had since 63. And then he had an Ovation guitar. So he let me use the Ovation guitar and I put a pencil up under the nut to raise the strings. And then where he worked at Eastman, he had a machinist make um, a Dobro bar. So he got my guitar teachers and, and traced it and took it and had one made. And so that's how I learned Dobro was on an Ovation guitar, which kept trying to slide off. Right, because it's got the round, round belly. Yeah. And so, um, but that's how, and think, I mean, I don't know if there's any wood on that guitar, so nothing really warped, because that's why the, the neck is so, you know, uh, thick on a, a Dobro because of the tension. But um, that's, that's really how I learned the Dobro. And then uh, Rick, my music teacher, my guitar teacher, would show me stuff. And then about, I don't know, two months in, he went to my dad and he just said, he goes, man, I can't teach him anything else. He goes, he, he needs a dobro. And then that Christmas I got my first dobro and, and that's what started me on, on that path. Yeah. So, you know, kind of show us, you know, a little bit of what, you know, of course the, the dobro normally has a, has a square neck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then you've got a so. wooden body and then it's got this, you know, resonator and the resonator is what kind of gives it its, its, attack and tone. Yeah, for sure. And so, and, and actually Dobro is a brand name. Yeah. So the, the kind of the, the technical term is resophonic guitar. And so that's what, and this is a resonator. And so um, that uh, Dobro, which is owned by Gibson, and um, this particular guitar, I had um, Tim Shearhorn, who makes really high-end resophonic guitars that look like this. Um, he actually took this all apart and put it back together with his parts, made a new nut, made a new insert, new resonator, um, the, the pickup and everything like that. So, um, yeah, and so this is, this is, I call this one the mule. This is my, 
This is the one that's been around the world with me multiple times in war zones and everything. Um, but this is my go-to, um, even though I have a couple, but this is my favorite. Yeah. And then I've got a Sunrise pickup in it, which, um, which I believe that was from you, Zach, yeah. that, <laughs> which also Leo Kotke played. Right. And then also Sean Colvin, you know, she had one in, in I think her Loudon guitar, which are amazing guitars. But um, I, so I, I needed a, like a magnetic pickup for this. So the way this guitar is set up is the, uh, the piezo or piezo, however you say it, is back here, uh, which is for the acoustic. And that is on the tip um, of the, the jack. And so um, then this is on the ring. So this is a TRS jack. So whenever I just plug a normal guitar cable in, it's this pickup. With a TRS, it, I can split the signal. And so this was during the pin monkey days where we had some lap still and then also dobro and us going back and forth so I could easily go back and forth from, yeah. from the two different pickups. Yes, with one instrument. With one yeah. instrument, yeah. yeah. That's a great you know kind of dual source system because yes, this is going to give more of an electric sound. Right. Because it's a, you know, it's basically an, an electric guitar pickup right underneath the strings. Right. And so by having the two systems you can really get a, a, a neat variety of sounds. And what's good about this one is also it's it's a it's a big magnet. So uh, in terms of like um, uh, interference and things like that, it's not as great as some of the other pickups that I experimented yeah. with. So if you were having kind of feedback problems and stuff, you could rely more on Just that other go to pickup. that one. Yeah. And it's got adjustable poles. So yeah. on some strings are little bit hotter than others, they respond differently you can adjust even, it. Even it out. Well, uh, play us a little bit so we can hear the, uh, uh, hear, the, hear the sound of it a little bit. Okay. Also mentioned uh, bending behind the bar. Yeah. So what? So it was. It was actually. It was on the lap still, but I could. Oh. Yeah. And where does that come from? Who 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 did that first? I don't know. There's probably a yeah. lot. Okay. Yeah. I was, uh, I I was just wondering, but yeah, that's a. That's a, a you know kind of a, a dobro technique and yeah, yeah it's uh, yeah that's a, a a good question finding where that came from and it's a neat you know dobro technique yeah and I mean the thing especially on lap still it's good it it just it's very limiting in terms of you know you can yeah. you know you're you're kind of a one trick pony with a lot of things yeah so um, for me that was that was the breaking point of Saying, all right, let's do pedal steel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we've got your lap steel out. That's right. So tell us a bit about this lap steel first, because this is so, awesome. Yeah, so I just got this uh, for the tour last year, and um, I was, uh, I'd seen Jerry Douglas play one like this that was a Telecaster body, but with a thicker neck, and I did some research, and come to find out, um, Alan Jackson, who I'd met on that very first gig that we talked about, um, I called him up and I said, hey, you're on their website in terms of these, mainly these necks, which is called Lap Dancer, uh, Redneck Lap Dancers. <laughs> so um, anyway, I said, uh, you know, what's the story on that? And he said, oh man, he goes, I've actually 
Jerry Douglas gave me a lap steel, and he goes, you know, man, do you want it? I would love to just, you know, get it to you. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So he brought it over, and, and that's what this is. It's just a kind of, I think it's a Mexican body with this lap uh, dancer neck on it, the red neck. And then it had some cheap, um, just Seymour Duncan Korean pickups in it. So I got uh, Russ Paul, uh, who was an amazing musician, slide player, everything. And but he also wounds his own pickups. Yes, we've had a number of guests on the show that have had his uh, full guitars that he's made. That yeah. yeah. And so anyway, I called him up and um, I said, "Man, um, I would love to get some of your pickups," and told him what I had. And so he. Uh, handpicked these for me and uh, which they, they sound great and so um, Jim Whitfield's my guitar tech and then also uh, one of the guys that's on our tour was Eddie Van Halen's guitar tech so he kind of helped with it so I this is the called the legend guitar so <laughs> <laughs> of all the history behind it but yeah it's great and uh, and actually whenever I play live there's a, a little contraption that goes back here that's a pad so I can actually stand up and play which on that that particular tour is, is you know they wanted us to be very mobile right. and to walk around, so yeah. uh, had to adapt to yeah. that. Just to, to hit on that for a bit, you know, the 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 carry tours went from being very much kind of what you would call normal backline yes. with amps and such, and then in the past number of tours, because of the uh, the sophistication of the stages and everything, it's you know it it changed to where changed you, dramatically, yeah, and so. With that, I mean, uh, even on the traditional aspect of it, our amps were still like 100 feet away from us. And so at the pedal board, we'd have to um, use a radio box, flip the signal, right. and then send it 100 feet, and then flip the signal back to plug it into, right. into the amp. And it, you know, in theory, it's, it's kind of a good idea. And they're in ISO boxes, so they're, you know, mic'd up and everything. And of course, you know, the amp would get shifted, the mic would get shifted, so you're still having to fine-tune it, and uh, it was on the Storyteller Tour when Sean Tubbs, uh, was, it was kind of his mastermind to, you know, he saw the direction that the tours were going uh, with, with ours in particular, because we went from the stage being on one side of the arena to being in the middle, mm -hmm. you know, going to full length, and, um, and, and space is really limited for us. And so we went the, the fractal route, and um, which for me, it, it was definitely a little bit of a, a learning curve with that, because I love pedals, and I love pedals with with the pots on it that I can turn yeah. the pots, and and I, I don't like scrolling, I don't like screens, that kind of thing. So um, with the fractal, it was uh, you know there there is a program that I was able to sit at my computer and dial in my sounds, and then um, we were able to go with it. Which in terms of that that tour, the fractal is the only way to go because of just the logistics of everything. Yeah, because everything's moving around and right. Yeah. And but for me, nothing nothing's better than a guitar, a couple of pedals, and an amp. <laughs> yeah. So you've got this guitar. Uh, this looks like an old Gibson Gold Tone amp. It is, yeah, the GA15, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I love this amp. And this is kind of my go-to amp. Um, it's just it it's got the body that I'm always looking for in terms of lap still and everything yeah. and. Uh, it's just been my go-to. Uh, that was back when tr uh, Gibson had bought Trace Elliott. Exactly. And that was a, a Trace Elliott amp, and then of course it became a, a Gibson, Gibson amp. Right. It was a vintage 30 in there. Th those are you know great little uh, EL84 powered you know amp. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, tell us about your uh, your pedal board here that you've got. So the pedal board, the, the to the right is the the uh, lap still, and to the left is the Dobro. Um, okay. When I and, and this is like my pretty much my only acoustic rig 
is just a LR bags of paracoustic DI and just a Boss tuner. I know it's not yeah. it's not the fanciest, but it is so. Um, and for whatever reason, these LR bags just respond the best to uh, the McIntyre uh, piezo that I have in the Dobro. Right. So. So again, the uh, the more acoustic sounding pickup on on the Dobro, yes, the the McIntyre, it's going through the Boss tuner and the Paracoustic DI. Correct. And then the the uh, the lap still, and, and especially this one that I have right now, yeah. it just runs through the open road, and then this um, ARP eighty seven, which is a Walrus pedals, and then the slow pedal, which is also a Walrus. So this is just a delay, and then this is kind of a delay, but kind of an ambient kind of just spacey kind of thing that um, there was one part of the, the carry show. And actually I use both of these for pedal still. Um, I have a quilter amp and I use those in, in the effects loop. And there was just a, something that they needed a little spaciness. And so I'm like, my Daniel Lenoir yeah. you know, influence kicked in. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they're great little pedals. And they added definitely a different dimension to the sound. Well, yeah, show us, uh, show us the pedals real quick. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. here's, this is the... I love having the little bit of the, the slap back um, in terms of not that. There we go. with a little bit of the And so, and, and like in terms of distortion pedals, I don't use a whole lot. Um, I, I try to get as much as I can from the amp, yeah. um, and and I just you know try to get most out of out of this. But I love the little overdrive; it just adds just a little bit, a little bit of something, something to it. Um, and then, uh, and then with the slow pedal, it's more of a. So it's got a lot of yeah. different dimensions to it, and uh, a little bit of a harmonizer and a little bit of a warble kind of. Yeah, got a little bit of that high octave thing. Yeah, yeah. I just like to keep it simple. Um, I try to get as much as I can out of the guitar and the amp, and then the pedals are just kind of the, the added. You know, if I if I do need an effect of sorts, I use the pedals for that. Yeah. And what type of volume pedal is that? This is a Goodrich, and um, this is the Goodrich is. Pretty much what I use on the pedal still most of the time. Um, this last tour I used the Hilton, which mm -hmm. is more of the optic, and yeah. um, and I, I really like that. But this, in terms of like for a, a pedal with a pot in it, I really like the Goodrich. Um, it's kind of got the low profile, so. Yeah. Now is that the one with the preamp in it and everything, or is this no, a standard just a straight? Yeah. yeah. Very cool. 
Well, Chad, I really appreciate you being on the show. It was Thank a real you, treat for you to uh, for you to come out and uh, you know and get to, get to hear you know some Dobro, get to hear your um, amazing story, and also the inspiration of of just having a, a can-do attitude and just being you know putting in the hard work and you know putting it out there and and saying yes and uh, taking those risks so well thank you and thank yeah. you for your your influence <laughs> through the years and your guidance man you've you've helped me a lot just in terms of anything guitar you you've always been great great with that and just a great friend so I appreciate it cool thanks <laughs>